0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Josh.
1: How are you, Bob?
0: I'm doing fine. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good. It's a pleasure being on your show.
0: You are Josh Landis. You're in Oklahoma, state of my birth, by the way. I was born in... Born in Lawton. How many people do you know who can say that? Well, you know more than most Americans. Well, that's know, the but-
1: artillery range. You must have your father must have been doing something military.
0: He was a lifer. I was. Uh, my family was a military family. He he was uh, with the artillery in World War II, and he stuck with it as a career. You're right. I was born at Fort Sill in Lawton. Um, So, uh, and we, and military affairs uh, will in some sense enter the conversation we're about to have. I I should say, you are one of America's foremost experts on Syria. You're a professor at the University of Oklahoma there. You're head of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Um, And we are going to talk about something that if you had told me a year ago was even a subject to talk about, I would have been surprised if you had told me that there was a kind of a, a brewing crisis involving the following countries, Ukraine, Russia, Sweden, Finland, Turkey, Syria, I would not have known what you meant. But in fact, that's the case. And I think a lot of people aren't really familiar with the Turkey, Syria, part of this, and the possibility that uh, as I guess, in some ways, as as a as a byproduct of the war in Ukraine, you could wind up with with Turkey invading Syria or something. Anyway, if I'm wrong about that, you can straighten me out. Um, I, I want to before we get to the immediate situation, I'd like to back up and set the stage by just kind of reminding people of uh, you know recent Syrian history, the war there, which of course did involve Russia, and in a different way, the United States and u s. allies. Um, and but first, I want to back up even further than that. I didn't know until reading your uh, Wikipedia entry, Josh, that you were in Syria, as I understand it, when a famously brutal re- re- repression perpetrated by the father of the current S- current Syrian
1: president, the yes, previous it, Assad, the Hama uprising in in 19, Hama. Right, 19, you were in 19,
0: Syria, 19, and then you went and visited Hama. Shortly after this, I mean, I gather that thousands of people were killed by Syrian troops, and and hundreds, if or a thousand or something, of the troops died. But this is a, a famously brutal uh, thing, and some would see it as a, as a, a kind of a, a harbinger of of what happened under his son. Do you want to you want to talk a little about that?
1: Yes, it was a prelude, you know, it, and it, it's a good way to step into the Syrian problem because Syria is a multi ethnic, multi religious land. The whole Ottoman Empire was multi-ethnic, multi-religious. And, you know, in a way to think about this, if, in connecting Ukraine and everything, is that Central Europe and Ottoman Empire, there were four great empires. And the First World War was the empire-destroying war. It, it really proved how much more efficient nation-states were at mobilizing the population, getting money, and putting up a standing army that was loyal, the state that would go out and die for the state the empires mutinies people left the military not that's kind of national loyalty and so we have the Austro-Hungarian the German Empire the Russian Empire and the the uh, Ottoman Empire for our purposes all collapse and out of it comes a string of new nation-states there are nine in Europe there's a whole bunch in the Middle East that are new nation states with new borders. And now the Russian Empire re-emerges in red clothing after World War I. Um, and it's still lingering in a, in, a, in a sense today. And that's part of the reason why its military is so you know overestimated. But out of the Ottoman Empire get built all of these little theoretically nation states, but they're really just chunks of this multi-ethnic empire. And there is going to, to, to turn them into nation states is a very bloody process. And we saw that bloody process in Central Europe, where countries like Poland, only 64% Polish before World War II. By, the, by 1950, 100% Polish. All the Jews, 3 million killed. You, the, the Germans, uh, ethnically cleansed from Poland. The Ukrainians, driven out. Um, this is this happens in Czechoslovakia, it happens right down Central Europe. About 42 million people are ethnically cleansed at the end of World War II and, and during the, the late 50s. We always think of World War II ending in 45, but in fact, it in Central Europe it continues because there's this tremendous ethnic cleansing going on right from one end. Of Central Europe to the other in order to build these nation-states and, and little places like Czechoslovakia can't even hold together They have to mm-hmm. have their velvet revolution the Czechs and Slovaks separate. We saw what happened in Yugoslavia, but that's what's happening In the 11 states in the Middle Eastern states today is that we're seeing this brutal civil war which is about who's going to control and what's the identity of the nation-state? What's the ethnic there's, there's identity ethnic cleansing going on? And, and America stepped into the middle of this. The, the Arab Spring, really in Syria, was about reform for the for the because there had been this terrible dictatorship. The Assad family ruled Syria from 1970, when Hafez al-Assad, the father, took over in a military coup, until today. And now the son took over in, in 2000 when the father died and he's ruled up until today. But they belong the Assad family belongs to the Alawite religious community. It's a heterodox Shiite spin-off. But it's only about 12% of the country. And they've grabbed And, power. and
0: Josh can can I just interrupt and just this just occurred to me just to make sure people understand how pervasive the phenomenon you're discussing is, which is to say what happens when national borders don't correspond to ethnic borders? And of course, the way uh, the European powers and the U.S. managed the aftermath of World War I created a lot of that in the Middle East. We just like drew straight lines, whatever their corresponds to tribal lines. But what I wanted to add was, remember, it, this is kind of the way World War II started. Hitler didn't like the fact that there were uh, German-speaking people that weren't in Germany. And he said, well, let's just expand Germany, you know, wherever that is is the case. Gross, the, Deutsch,
1: the, Gross Deutsch, the, the bigger Germany solution, because there are 12 million Germans who are outside of the borders. For right. example, little Ukraine, which we talk about today so much, little Ukraine had 6% German population. Hitler conquers it to try to bring it into this big Germany. Um, he uses the German minority as a collaborative elite to rule a right. the place. Then as soon as Stalin takes it back, those German elite gets wiped out. Many of them get killed or marched off to Siberia, but others flee back towards Germany. Mm-hmm. And all 12 million of those Germans living in places like the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia and in Poland and so forth, are ethnically cleansed at the end of World War II right. and have to fall back on the motherland or get killed. and And that process, is a process of sort of what I call the great sorting out. And, and, just, is-
0: and just one more quick interjection: This is one reason people are comparing Putin to Hitler. The the you know his the 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 context of the war in Ukraine is him saying, "Wait a second, there are these uh, ethnic Russians across the border in Ukraine, and he said they are being persecuted." A, a, a charge that's not totally devoid. Uh, of, of accuracy, there has there has been at least some uh, persecution, and we can argue about, you know, and I and I certainly don't don't uh, do don't, don't support uh, invading countries in situations like this. And he he violated international law, and he, and he's in the wrong, and and so on. But again, you have it's the generically kind of the same problem that we have trouble it's managing. It's
1: It's a messy ethnic yeah. and religious problem, and and this is. You know, Russia's big and it can throw its weight around. Of course, Russia conquered Ukraine back in the you know, 18th century, Catherine the Great and so forth, and, and, and has been, you know, mixed up with Ukraine, claims that Ukraine is sort of the proto-Russian, the Rus and so forth, which, which we've, you know, largely debunked. And, but these different national identities emerge and they're still split in a place like Ukraine and they're going to get sorted out. And that's what this war is doing. And it's going to be very bloody because of it. Uh, and you and,
0: don't see. Does that mean that in the case of Ukraine, believe me, I'll let you get back to your narrative, which is fascinating in itself. But does that mean that you suspect that in Ukraine, ultimately, look, the Donbass is going to wind up either under Russian control in some sense? That's where the well, ethnic Russians does, are. If
1: it does, the Ukrainians, the, the people who want to be Ukrainians in that area, are going to have to flee and right. go. Well, many Ukraine. of them have already. Uh, yes, they have. And if if Ukraine is going to reconquer it those Russians are going to get scalped uh, or they're going to flee back into Russia. And it's going to sort this area out ab- around these national loyalties. And, and that's, that's where the tussle is really coming. And, and now in, in Crimea, you know, had been ruled by Crimean Tartars. Those Tartars were wiped out in world war II by Stalin. He had the Russians since Catherine the Great had re- had populated the area mm-hmm. and, it was 87% ethnic russian so ukraine is much harder to make this argument that not ukraine excuse me crimea is harder to make the argument that it's you know it shouldn't be russian right um, but obviously this is you know th- these wars are messy and it's about identity and we we know in ukraine you've got families that are split down the middle where one identifies with the Ukrainian side, mm-hmm. and the other part of the family identifies with the Russian side, and and it's very hard to to because it's not really ethnic. It's it's a uh, it's a cultural war about identity and where right. your history is and your past and how it's you. It's not it's not racial. It, it, it's uh, put it that way. Yes.
0: So um, uh, sorry. So I, I I took you away from uh, the Middle East just to make sure people understand some of the parallels, and there are more we'll get to. I think, but but go ahead and, and resume wherever but they, you feel. But
1: they, you know. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is that Syria has been ruled with a security state that is packed with Alawite officers. Now, the, the Alawite officers, who are 12 you know, the Alawites are 12%, have allied themselves with other minorities, like the Christians, another, you know, 8% or something like that, 4 to 8% today. They used to be 15%. Uh, but with Druze and Ismailis, other religious minorities in order to cling on to power. They've also allied themselves with many Sunnis, particularly upper-class Sunnis who have a lot to lose in a war. So this country was split along these religious and ethnic lines. And we see the Kurds in the North, 10% of the population, who would like to have their own you know, independent nation, if not autonomy. Maybe perhaps autonomy is what they're going for today, but there's, there's a desire to have what they call their national rights. And, and this is splitting apart Syria. The, the regime is trying to keep control of everything. And the Sunni Arab population, which didn't all but much of it joined the rebel cause. And within a year of the uprising, almost all the rebels were Sunni Arabs. And the Kurds were doing their own thing, but the, the Sunni Arabs and America began to Support them against. When did America begin to?
0: When did America begin to support the Sunnis?
1: Well, America began to support them from day one. In in rhetorical terms.
0: So this is like what year?
1: This is 2011. March 2011. The uprising begins, and the United States and the ambassador who was there, uh, Ford, went ultimately went to Hama, joined the protesters, and spoke out very uh, forcefully in favor of freedom, democracy, and so forth. And America very early pitched this uprising as an uprising about democracy mm-hmm. in the same way they had done in Iraq and were doing in Libya and so forth, in Afghanistan. And there but was there,
0: some of that spirit, right? I mean, I remember, I, as I recall, one big thing was like these junior high kids or something put some slogans on a uh, Building, I, I don't know if it said Assad must fall or what, and and so maybe maybe it wasn't uh, kind of like a, a you know liberal democracy slogans per se, but I mean they they, they wanted they wanted self-determination. You tell me. Sorry. Uh, anyway, those kids, I gather, were were like put in jail and and treated pretty pretty brutally for kids, oh, right?
1: Yes, they, they were tortured. Um, this everybody in Syria wanted reform. And yeah. everybody in Syria had been chafing at the security state, which which should become corrupt and treated people miserably. So the Alawites, the minorities, everybody wanted a change and wanted some. But the trouble is they didn't agree. Some people wanted an Islamic-type state with more Sharia law. Other people wanted a secular state, particularly the minorities, upper-class Sunnis. So people had not come to grips with what is Syria you know how do we define some people defined it, most people defined it as Arab nationalism but others as Syrian nationalism there wasn't even a uh, any agreement over what the true national identity because the Kurds are not included in the Arab nationalism but they are in a Syrian national identity and so forth and so on so they, it was a mess and America framed it as a democratic revolution the revolutionaries themselves, did not frame it that way in the beginning. The slogans were about freedom, a change of system, Isqat al nizam down with the regime, and Assad's got to go, and uh, dignity. So freedom and dignity were the, the words that were used. And this was, they were very carefully chosen because the organizers that were on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, outside of the, Outside of Syria, and there were many um, expats who had been kicked out by the Assad regime, and had been thrown out in '82 when he when he destroyed the Muslim Brotherhood. They were very careful to try to frame these and and encouraged all Syrians not to use sectarian religious slogans or Islamic slogans. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want to say liberal democracy because a lot of Syrians don't don't know what liberal democracy is, and they don't like the word liberal and secular because they want something Muslim. And all the militias that sprung up to fight Assad wanted more Sharia law. That was the one thing that they had in common. So using the word democracy was gonna split the opposition. Mm -hmm. And so the organizers did not wanna use that. Later it comes out because America's forcing people to put it in there because they're not gonna get money, Unless they say they're going to treat everybody equally and there's going to be democracy and elect- free elections and so forth.
0: So the <laughs> Syrian Democratic Forces, I think, is the name of the group that we came to support. Is that is that right,
1: or is that only after only only after the rise of ISIS? The D- Syrian Democratic Forces are in the northeast I where the Kurds predominate, and when we switched in in 2016, we switched horses. We stopped. Supporting the Arab fighters. And we because they wouldn't fight against ISIS.
0: The Sunni, the Sunni Arabs would not fight. The Shia Shia Arabs would have been happy to fight against ISIS.
1: But there weren't many. They were part and they were they They, were in Lebanon regime. They were loyalists. Right. All the different heterodox religious groups and Shiites and Christians were by and large loyal. Not all, but most remained loyal to Assad because they feared an Islamic, um, some kind of Islamic state being created that would discriminate against them. So once the United States, once Al-Qaeda and ISIS became the paramount powers in Syria, overshadowing, overshadowing the many militias that made up the Free Syrian Army that America was trying to support, that were not so Islamist, then America got spooked. And we remember that already by the end of 2014 ISIS had become a real power. It swept through Iraq, but it started in Syria, in Raqqa in the northeast and it carved out a big hunk of Syria. It owned about 40% of the Syrian territory mm-hmm. and it was moving towards Damascus. And America began to be very anxious that ISIS and Al-Qaeda would take Damascus if Assad fell. And John Brennan, head of CIA, uh, gives a long interview at the Council on Foreign Relations in 2015, March 2015. And he says, we don't want Assad to fall, the regime to fall, and the military to fall, because the the ISIS and al-Qaeda are most likely to take over. And now Russia was listening to that. And it's shortly after that that Russia makes the decision to come in on the side of Assad. And I think okay. Russia, Russia made the calculation well-founded, that America would not object. And in fact, John Kerry and others immediately began to cooperate with the Russians huh. on how to stabilize Syria. And there, there was a division of labor. America was going to take on ISIS. And Russia was going to stabilize the Assad regime and take on all the other militias that were in Syria. So America stuck to the Northeast killing ISIS, and to do that, they dumped the Arab militias, and they started supporting the Kurds, because the Kurds are in the northeastern region, and they had been clobbered by ISIS, okay. who, were, who were depending on the Arab tribes of the region to be their manpower, and the Arabs, this turned it into an Arab versus Kurdish, and some of the Christians in the area, hostility, an ethnic battleground.
0: Okay, so to make sure I understand, so uh, we initially Obama kind of uh, wandered into the Syrian thing, I might say. It's he, he got he, in. he did yeah, not
1: want
0: to get involved. He, what by American hawks or something. I mean, you know, and at some point he makes this this statement Assad must go. Well, that's a big commitment. But uh, you know, at that point it it made sense to if you're gonna go with that commitment, it makes sense to support the Sunnis who want to overthrow Assad. But then once ISIS is the big threat in Syria. Uh, well, the, the Sunnis we were supporting don't want to fight ISIS. We want somebody to fight ISIS. It's a little awkward at that point to say, "Well, okay, we're pro Assad after all." Although all the natural, in, most of the natural enemies of ISIS are on Assad's side. That—that's our problem. Suddenly, the Kurds are at that point the one group, right, that is willing to fight ISIS and is not on Assad's side. So we basically ally with them and 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 let have an understanding in effect with Russia that they can do what it's too awkward for us to do, right, which is turn on our erstwhile allies these sunnis uh, uh,
1: that's yeah. all malicious, yes, absolutely and you know we in a sense ignited Kurdish nationalism in order to gain.
0: I mean, it it existed. We didn't create it. It was a force, but we we gave them hope. Yeah, we we gave
1: it to them hope, and we armed them. And you know, we said we're not going to start a Kurdish nation. Okay, from the very beginning, we made it clear that we're not going to support an independent Kurdish nation, but we're going to give you arms. We're going to train you, and we we don't like Assad and so forth. So, in that sense, the Kurds said, "Okay, we're happy to say we're going to remain in Syria under an autonomous." situation, but we will take your arms, and we will take your air power, and we will fight ISIS in order to regain control of all this territory north of the Euphrates River, which is a a lot of territory, much more than the Kurds, you know, are the majority population in. So they, they got a very good deal, short term. The problem is, now that ISIS is largely destroyed, will America stay? Because without America, the Kurds are finished as an independent power in the region because they don't have an air force. There are 2 million plus Kurds in Syria. They were the poorest population before the war. To try to create an independent state out of them is a is a Herculean task that America is not gonna take on. But worse than that for the Kurds, is that Turkey sees that YPG, which is the major Kurdish military organization. Now, they
0: associated with it. The KPP is the Turkish separatist group that Erdogan considers the enemy. Is the YPG their military arm or or what?
1: Okay. The, The PKK, which... Oh, it's, the P- it's the
0: PKK. I had it yeah, wrong.
1: PKK the, it's the it's the Kurdish Workers Party. Okay. In in in, in Turkish, the, the acronym is PKK. PKK. Okay. Uh, and that has been fighting under Ocalan, their leader, for an autonomous region and Kurdish nationalism in eastern Anatolia. So, if they were to win, under Ocalan, they would hive off a big hunk of Turkey. So Turkey's not going to let this. There's been a low-grade war there. Turkey's been slamming them. 40 million, uh, 40, excuse me, thousand people plus have been killed over the last 30, 40 years. So it's a it's a very serious matter in Turkey. The YPG in Syria is a wing of the PKK. It's got an independent leadership. They have Distance themselves to a certain degree from the PKK. America has said they're not the PKK in order to arm them because America recognizes the PKK as a terrorist group and works with Turkey to suppress them. But America needed their organization and allies in Syria. So it declared them a different power and, and, and encouraged the leadership of the YPG to distance themselves. But they still have big signs of ochelon and you know the, the the distance is is a little bit fluid. So okay. Turkey says these are all terrorists. America's supporting terrorists and America's done a terrible thing in Syria by arming these people because the arms are gonna seep across the border, the loyalties are still there, and this is gonna you know, this is going to uh, put a fire underneath this rebellion in eastern Anatolia. So and, we- so that's what so Turkey is at, at loggerheads with the United States and that's how the whole Sweden Finland thing comes out okay into
0: that's it. what I was going to ask about lots So when of
1: Kurds and lots of Turks have gone and migrated over the last 40 50 years to Sweden, particularly Sweden and Finland but mostly Sweden and Sweden' has been very liberal in taking in uh, Arab refugees, Syrian refugees but also all these Kurds and it allows the PKK, And various Kurdish political parties to, in a sense, have a soapbox in Sweden. So Turkey sees Sweden wanting to join NATO and has veto power over this and is saying, no, you cannot join until you crack down on this terrorist organization. And we have to agree that this is a terrorist organization. You're going to crack down on it and, um, and you're not going to enter until you do. And this is a way for Turkey to make America take seriously its demands to back off supporting the YPG in Syria as well. And so Erdogan is threatening to invade northern Syria and to push the YPG 30 kilometers away from the border. Turkey says, we want a buffer zone along the entire 500-mile Syrian border, and Now, did they they
0: create some part of that during the Trump administration?
1: Yes, they did. With Trump's acquiescence. Trump agreed to it. Turkey jumped in, and then Trump reversed. So Turkey got some hunks of it, but he was kept out of other places, particularly the places that have uh, a heavy Kurdish population. But the Kurds are on tenterhooks. They are biting their nails, worried that Washington will sacrifice them in order to gain Turkish support in Ukraine.
0: So Erdogan so, wants Washington to say, if you will let Finland and Sweden into NATO, we will let you engage in basically ethnic cleansing. Is that a fair term? Uh, south of
1: the well, that's Turkish... that's what's going been in, in Afrin, in areas west where American troops are not, American troops are in eastern North Syria, but in right. west North Syria, there are important pockets of Kurdish population and in Afrin, a big one, the Turks moved their military and their proxies, their Arab rebel proxies that they support, into this area and drove out 200,000 Kurds from Afrin mm. and arrested many others who had disappeared and so forth and uh, and moved in Arab refugees. Now the Turks say, look at all we're doing is getting rid of a terrorist. We're not against Kurds, we're against a terrorist organization and we're repatriating all these Syrians who are going back the Syrian Arab Sunnis, who've been driven up into Turkey there's over 3 million in Turkey we're going to bring them back to Syria build them housing put electricity in I see. we're a charity organization and this is just bringing Syrians back to Syria we're not engaged in ethnic and, and we'd but like the Kurds it. to
0: move and we'd like the Kurds to move to create the space to put the where the that's YPG
1: right. in particular—that's what they're yeah. saying—but all the Kurds are are fleeing because it's very hard to tell who's who, and they all the Kurds largely support the YPG, who they see as their protector, and they're frightened of the Turks. So
0: this would be both an invasion of Syria, tech, you know, a, a violation of international law in that sense, which Turkey has already done with Trump's acquiescence, uh, temporary acquiescence, um, and then on top of that it would be uh, you know, a kind of a kind of ethnic cleansing, I guess. And and I mean, is there, uh, do you think there's a chance that that they'll prevail and the US will say, okay, we really want Sweden and Finland and NATO, and if this is your price, we'll pay it?
1: You know, it, it leaves America in a very unenviable position because it is a light of self with the Kurds. The Kurds, Thousands of Kurds were killed fighting Isis. Mm -hmm. They have been our most loyal ally. They've been a loyal ally in Iraq Um, So For us to pull out Of Syria will mean that there's a land rush the Syrian army Supported by the Russians will try to move up from the south and say this is Syria We're a sovereign nation. They should be under our control. Turkey is going to rush in from the north and say, these are all terrorist organizations and we've got to clean them out of this area because the Syrian army is, it won't do it. So America doesn't need to be in North Syria today. It's there in order to fight ISIS, but ISIS is a rear guard action. And in fact, America's presence, one can argue, is only helping ISIS today. In, because, in, what, in what way? Because Syria is divided into three major zones. There's a Syrian zone under which Assad rules about 70%, 65, 70% of the country. There's an American zone in the Northeast dominated by the Kurds that owns about 25% of the country. And there's a Turkish zone in the Northwest, which is about, oh, six, seven, 8% of the country. So those three zones are all enemies, one of the other arab Sunni rebels, Kurdish pro-American, Assad pro-Iran, pro-Russia. And because they're all enemies of each other, and ISIS is only a, a distant number two enemy to any one of those today, hmm. because they're all worried about somebody else. ISIS can play in between, can run in between the legs of these three inimical powers. And there's no joint police force, there's no sharing of intelligence, there's no working together. And so ISIS benefits from that, the chaos in this border regions where it's going back and forth. And that's why we're finding the head of, you know, the the last two caliphs of ISIS have been caught in the Turkish dominated zone, which has Arab rebels in it. And they're very Islamist and they, they tend to be close their eyes to these Islamists.
0: And, and how would that change if we were not such a presence in Syria? So, uh, so if, if we weren't so supportive of the Kurds, is that the idea?
1: Well, you know, w- what's gonna happen, I, but I would pause it, here I'm going out on a limb, uh, but what I believe will happen is that the United States, not under Biden, because Biden pulled out of Afghanistan and took a big hit, He's not going to pull out of Syria and take a second big hit on foreign policy. He'll stay there and kick the can down the road. But the next administration, or the administration after that, within 10 years, America is going to leave Syria. And that means abandoning this top-heavy Kurdish administered 25% of Syria. And that'll be like leaving Afghanistan, because they will be enemies of those Kurds who are going to take over. And It can either be the Assad and his army, or it can be the Turks and their army. Now, the Kurds...
0: The Kurds will have to fight somebody when we leave? Is that the idea? Yes,
1: they're going to have to just choose one side or the other. And the, 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 the side they will choose is Assad. Because Assad needs the Kurds in order to rule northeast Syria. And he wants to go back to his borders. Now, the Kurds want full autonomy, have their own military and their own schools and speak Kurdish. Assad is not going to let them do that. And he won't agree to that kind of autonomy. He says, no, all the Kurds must serve in the Syrian army, and it'll be the Syrian army that rules this area. So he'll put paid to any kind of quasi-independence or self-determination. He might give them, and he's already said, you can have Kurdish in your schools, some kind of cultural autonomy. But the Kurds, that would be better for the Kurds, than what Turkey is offering. Because Turkey is gonna push them out of that border region and put Arab rebel groups in their place, which would be much worse for them. So So, uh, they've been carrying out talks with Assad, even as America has ruled the place, Assad won't give them what they want. As long as America's willing to stay, the Kurds will stick with the Americans. But the moment that uh, America says we're leaving, the Kurds are gonna have to scramble and come up with some kind of alliance with Assad. It would behoove the United States not to repeat its Afghan experience, which is to sort of make the decision we're pulling out our troops without preparing for some kind of transition. And that's gonna be a a painful, painful transition, but it's one that America should be carrying out.
0: What what would its general contours be? I mean, what...
1: The contours would be that the Syrian army is going to rule northeastern Syria. And that means the leadership that we have built up there under the YPG and the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is what we named them, uh, which is largely dominated by Kurds, but not entirely Kurdish. There are Christian Assyrians, there's tribal Sunnis, there is a mixture, but the leadership is Kurdish. That leadership Will probably flee. Like the Afghan government. They're not mm-hmm. gonna to want to stay because they've been traitors, right? They have worked with America, they've taken the oil outside of the country, they've enriched themselves, trying to build an autonomous region. Now it's you know, you can if you're sympathetic to the Kurds, you're saying they're just doing what's natural for them. But the trouble is, from the eyes of the Arab Syrians, they're traitors. Because they're working with a foreign power, America to take away Syrian oil, which is largely in their region, some of the best agricultural land, and and water rights. So, And they're working with the Americans. So they're going to be seen. So that leadership is going to have to run away. And they're going to have to apply for American citizenship. But you're
0: saying so if like we that. do the alternative and support Turkey, things are even worse for the Kurds on balance. They're going
1: to get killed. They're going to, yeah. they're going to all have to flee too, but there's going to be much more popular destabilization.
0: Not to mention the fact that you will suddenly have uh, have to redraw borders, which is inherently a messy business, right? I mean, if Tur- Turkey- uh, yes,
1: Inherently a messy business.
0: Uh, it, I mean, maybe you wouldn't have to have to, but that seems like well, a Turkey likely- rule it. The way they're ruling North
1: Syria is that they would have Arab proxies. Yeah. They can claim that this is the legitimate Arab Syria because Assad mm-hmm. is illegitimate. And they would use their proxies to rule it in the same way that America's using the Kurds to rule that area today. So it, there's all ways to skin the cat in this sovereignty issue. But, you know, the UN recognizes the Assad government. And America, this is, this is one of America's big problems in the Northeast and why we couldn't exploit the oil that's mm-hmm. there. Because it's Syria's oil. If we export it through an American company, we're stealing their oil. In the same way that we're accusing Russia of stealing Ukraine's wheat by shipping it out of Ukraine. And they say, no, that's not Russian wheat, and that's not Donbas wheat, that's Ukrainian wheat, and you can't ship it out. But we're doing the same thing in Syria. Right. And and so, yeah. We should just, you know, pause and note that uh,
0: you know, there there's been every once in a while American politicians talk about international law and bemoan the violation of it, but we are in fact in violation of international law, just in having troops in Syria that the Syrian government doesn't want there. Is that, I mean, I'm not an internet, neither of us I suppose is a scholar of international law, but that would seem to be the straightforward yes, the reading. Big, of the, situation.
1: the big difference between us in Syria and the United States and Ukraine is that we're supporting an insurgency to overthrow the internationally recognized government. You
0: mean between Russia. us in Syria and Russia in Ukraine, right? Russia that's, and Ukraine. That's the difference Russia. you're drawing, okay.
1: In Syria, Russia was on the side of the recognized government. Right. It was, it was invited by the recognized government to help them. Now, so
0: they, they were not violating international law in Syria. It is, I've seen people list that as a Russian invasion, but that's really not what it was under international law.
1: No, the Americans were the invaders in right. Syria because we moved our troops in to support insurgents who've taken a hunk of Syrian territory now of course America says these are freedom fighters against a tyrannical brutal regime and there's you know th- that
0: which is what Russia says about uh, Donbass anyway.
1: saying about trying to use the same language of the the Nazi regime and so forth so it it is you know but in terms of international law um, yes
0: okay so um so just to crystallize the situation with Turkey, Sweden, Finland, and NATO. Turkey is saying what they want is for Finland and Sweden to quit supporting Kurds, rebellious Kurds from Turkey's point of view, who have moved to Finland and Sweden and are operating out of there. And I'm sure Turkey would like that, but there's something else they're hoping to get out of this moment, which is to solve what they consider the problem in Northern Syria with the Kurds, which would uh, involve, uh, you know, in, in effect, a, a kind of invasion, a force, a forcible relocation of some Kurds, the the, the movement into Syria of refugees who also uh, are by and large enemies of the Assad regime, I guess. Um, and, uh, and so I guess one question is would Turkey, Kind of settle for either of those, do you think, uh, in exchange for letting uh, Sweden and Finland in, into NATO? I'm sure they'd love to have both, right? Solve they'd both like problems,
1: both. They, but they're only,
0: they're only citing one as their official grievance, and presumably—that's
1: no, no, not completely true, because okay. Erdogan is talking about invading Syria. He's talking about it. We're going to go in there, and we're going to—we're going to we're gonna take build this buffer zone, and we're going to take out the YPG now. The problem with that is that in Syria, so there's a long border, and the eastern part of Syria, America is protecting the Kurds. In the western part of Syria, the Aleppo province, just north of Aleppo, the Kurds are protected by Russia and the Syrian army. So it's it's beautiful from, from Erdogan's point of view because he's playing down the middle on Ukraine. He's giving support to the Ukrainian government but he's also not sanctioning Russia he's taking russian oil he's got russian trade he's allowed a russian you know oligarchs to park their 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 yachts on, on the turkish coast so he's playing this delicate balance in between Russia and the United States and that balance is reflected in Syria so he could attack the Kurds on the russian side or he could attack the Kurds on the american side now obviously he's seeing russia in a very weak position and he, he might be able to make a deal with the russians to attack the kurds on the russian side of syria which would which would hurt assad in russia but do it in order to keep turkey sweet with with putin i mean if putin let him do it he could negotiate and say don't give any more of those drones don't, you know, allow our ships to go through, allow, you know, us to send oil through Turkey. All of those sorts of things could be negotiated. Um, but then he can turn around to the Americans and say, look, at, Russia's given me a good deal, and you're giving me nothing. So um, I'm not, gonna, you know, you got to give me something on the Kurdish side of things. And, and he can play those two against each other. And So he's in a very enviable position of, of leverage here. And he's trying to maximize it by threatening to invade, not allow Sweden and Finland into NATO, and to just make a big ruckus about how he's badly treated and America's supporting, and the Europeans are supporting this terrorist organization, the Kurds, the Kurdish PKK.
0: Do you think the dealing is actually going on? In other words, there are conversations between Turkey and Russia and between Turkey and the U.S.? Yes. Uh, kind of like about, like, what will you let me do in Syria?
1: Yes. What can I, what, how do we, how do we come to an agreement? That's, that's the way they're being probably phrases. How do we find some, you know, we have legitimate defense concerns in America. That's America's language. America always starts out any response to Erdogan by saying you have legi- legitimate security concerns on your border with a the YPG. Then they say, but you can't take anything. Mm -hmm. So then they're going to say, "Well, if they're legitimate, why you've got to let us have this buffer zone?" And so it it becomes very awkward, and America doesn't want them to do anything. Uh, On the other hand, you know, Turkey is much more important to the United States than these Kurds in Syria, and that's that's the terrible problem for the Kurds in Syria. The balance of power today, now that ISIS is destroyed, largely, is that. Turkey is just so much more important. Turkey is the, what, the, the seventh largest economy in Europe. It's, you know, one of the 17th in the world or something like that. It's it's a major power. And it sits in between all these continents. It's important to Russia. So Turkey is sitting there in a very enviable position. It's got a lot of leverage. And America's honor is at line supporting the Kurds, but not much else.
0: Hmm. So you think ultimately America will get out of Syria withdraw the
1: troops? Oh, yes, it, it we're not going to stay there for 100 years. Yeah, the but it, but we don't have an air force. But it the, kind the of depends. They, you can imagine that air power off of them. They're 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 finished as an independent military force.
0: But you can imagine a series of presidents of America who would all find it too awkward to withdraw or just idealize. I mean, look, if if uh Sure. You know, if you just look can at recent candidates. It's inexpensive.
1: Yeah. It's inexpensive. They're going to kick the can down the road. But eventually, like in Afghanistan, somebody's going to come along and say, what the hell are we doing here? And Trump tried to do that, right? And a lot of Americans were sympathetic to it. Mm-hmm. It's like, why do we need 2,000 troops in Syria? What are they doing? And we're getting into all these fights. Now, so far, Americans have not been killed in Syria.
0: Right. That's a difference. But,
1: but there are a lot of people who are looking for ways to kill those Americans. And Turkey will find a way, the Syrian government, Iran, so forth, all of whom ISIS is trying to kill Americans there. They're all going to work to, and, and a lot of the Arabs in that American zone feel unhappy because the Kurds are ruling the roost. So there's mm-hmm. an ethnic trouble and Assad and others can play on that ethnic trouble. So there's a lot of ways to begin to pull the lion's tail. In this area and we'll get stuck the way we were in Iraq you send rockets or drones to attack American bases and then it becomes why are we here
0: yeah. now one answer would be well we get to steal the oil I mean are we how literally, I mean what what do we do with the are we just taking the oil who who how does the oil leave Syria whose hands is, is it in who profits immediately like are these American oil companies what what happens with the oil? in the land but that we occupy. There American oil
1: companies now in Syria because Trump did give a license to an American oil company. Yeah. American built oil company to go in and and um, there was a contract for about $2 billion to, to rehabilitate the Syrian oil wells largely destroyed and all the infrastructure is just a mishmash. There's oil leaking out in the desert. It's a, it's a mess. And somebody needs to reorganize it because that's the wealth that could rebuild Northeastern Syria. So, Hmm. but because it's all illegal for America to be taking out Syrian oil against the international government, recognized government, uh, America decided, Biden said, no, we're not going to do that. He took away the license from that company. And today, the Kurds are bringing out crude oil. Many Kurds are trying to smuggle it to Damascus. Because that's where the refineries are and it's easiest, and Syria needs oil. But America's trying to discourage them from doing that. Say, don't do that because that'll help Assad. We want to starve Assad. Let's get it out through Iraq. And so they're taking it out in tankers and other and so forth into Iraq, and it's being sold through Iraq. But that means the Iraqis get most of the a lot of the money for facilitating this. And there's very little money is trickling back to the Kurdish-dominated. Authority of this autonomous zone, and that's that's where the money is going. But it's, it's dribs and drabs of money compared to what it could be if the wells were really cleaned out and uh, pipelines were put in there and so forth.
0: Okay. Um, in retrospect, the the whole U.S. intervention in Syria, and after this, I want to get back to Russia a little. But um, you know, what would you? Say about that? I mean, I mean, I, you know, my sense has been that if if we uh, had had just, well, if you imagined a scenario, and this is pure thought experiment because I don't know that we could have controlled what our regional allies did, even if we had tried to exert pressure. But if you imagine a world in which us and our regional allies are not pouring weapons into Syria. Presumably, what you wind up with is kind of what you have now. Assad is still the leader of Syria, except with a lot fewer dead people, a lot fewer refugees. And Syria is, in fact, still a coherent country, and its various parts aren't occupied by various countries. Is that,
1: uh, yes. is that yeah. your take? The, 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 t- the dilemma is that you leave the Assad government in power.
0: Which it is anyway
1: which it is in 70% of the country, but not in the other 30%.
0: And yeah, but it ain't it, leaving, right? I mean, we've given up on that, I, I assume. Maybe we haven't.
1: Right, but Turkey is supporting this big... Right. That's the trouble, is we have... Turkey has supported the Arab rebel militias that have been pushed back by the Assad military into this northwestern zone. Into the northeastern zone are the Kurds which America has supported and built up and developed a lot of loyalties with. So those leaderships are going to be pummeled if Assad takes over. And there's going to be an outflow of refugees again, the way there was in Afghanistan when America left.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of people who we've spent a lot of time telling, trust us, be loyal, work with us. We're going to build democracy and secular regime and so forth. Those people are going to be, you know, they're, they're going to, From our zone, it's gonna be Kurds, and from the other zone, it's gonna be the more Islamist fighters, the rebel fighters, who who Turkey has largely taken under their wing today. So that's the trouble. And and in the Northwest, the Turkish side, there are at least three million refugees that got driven up in front of the Assad's army that are sitting Mm -hmm. there in refugee camps. And if Assad takes over, many of those people fought against his regime tooth and nail, are considered traitors, and they're going to try to flee into Turkey. So Turkey doesn't want that. that that's, that's the humanitarian dilemma here. and And that's why Syria remains divided into three today, because the international community doesn't know what to do, and they don't want to be responsible for the humanitarian, you know, terrible situation that's going to ensue if Assad takes over both of these regions. So in a sense... They've come to, this This division of Syria has been legitimized in the eyes of the international community. And how it's going to undo itself is unclear, because the northwest, the Turkish zone, is really like the Gaza Strip in some ways. It is very poor, tons of refugee camps, with no, people not being able to get in and out with ease, because Turkey's built a big wall, and Syria has... Got this front line, and so they're trapped in there with very little money being fed by international largesse so in that sense it's it's one of these new zones in the world, which is sort of a failed it's a ward of the international community mm-hmm. like Gaza is or like haiti in a in a way it is you know in the nineteenth century people would immigrate from these areas and go you know get on a boat and go to the Americas or Australia or something but you can't do that today so the international community just throws money at them mm-hmm. and says, don't come into my space, right? Don't eat at my table, but we'll give you enough so you don't starve. But you live in these terrible camps. There's no real solution. And that's that's becoming, you know, that's, that's the way things are getting frozen in Syria. And it's unclear how, what the way is out of that.
0: Now, should the fighting end in Ukraine, you will presumably have a situation that's in at least some ways parallel. I mean, it it won't be as complicated as Syria. There won't be as many fragments, but you will have a situation. I mean, uh, assuming, which I think is a safe assumption, that Russia doesn't get driven all the way out of uh, Ukraine in in the fullest sense of the term. Ukraine, uh, which I just don't see happening without uh, uh, Putin resorting to extremely desperate measures that none of us should welcome. Uh, So assuming that you're going to wind up with a situation where it's kind of a frozen conflict, uh, and there are borders that the international community I think is rightly reluctant to 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 recognize because they would have been created via uh, the illegal use of force by Russia.
1: The, the Kissinger the Kissinger um, option, which is that America is going to need to sit down as a great power with Russia and you know draw some new borders in a sense, mm-hmm. a zone of influence, and. And that's, you know, that America's saying they won't do that and they're not going to do it. But that's going to lead to, in some ways, it's, it leads to a similar situation in Syria where you're, you're supporting an insurgency. Now, of course, it's not the insurgency. You're supporting the legitimate government in Ukraine with more and more firepower. But that means Russia escalates their firepower. And, yeah. and more and more cities are going to be turned to rubble. And this is what happened in Syria. In order to take back Aleppo, the Syrian government had to use barrel bombs and airplanes and tons of artillery, and it devastated the city. The same thing happened in Raqqa and Mosul. In taking it back, those cities back, the Americans used tremendous firepower in order to take them back from ISIS and 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 level the cities. They're not going to be; they're not rebuilt today, and they're still in in, in complete rubble. So that's- the cities, the cities they
0: would retake would have already been kind of half reduced to rubble in some cases since that's the way Russia fights. They're very artillery-heavy military. Uh, and it's not
1: just Russia. The American, yeah. you know, when we took Raqqa and we took Mosul, we lined up artillery. One of my students is an artillery guy, and he had these giant howitzers, and they could shoot from 30 miles away, and he said we were very— you know, the first few bombs are inaccurate, but we have drones and so forth, and then we can really vector in on house to house— and we just house
0: to house with thirty from thirty miles away with how, I mean are the are the shells themselves uh, precision weapons? They're not
1: right. I no, mean they're not they're not. big, But it's just it's just micro managing. I don't thing. understand the physics so- of
0: that. But anyway,
1: well, you know I'm sure it wasn't as clean as they make it out to be, and it's yeah. messy. And if there's a big gust of wind, it blows it off by by a bunch of meters, and you end up hitting the wrong house. But that's that's. What's going on? Mm. And, and if you're going to be caught, America didn't want to put boots on the ground. You know, nobody wants their soldiers to be right. killed. Mm. So you're always going to go to the higher firepower, and that's why we used the atom bomb in Japan. We didn't want to land on Japan and have a bunch of our soldiers killed. So we decided, let's nuke them. And well, and we were it we
0: were doing that before the nukes. We killed hundred thousand people in Tokyo in forty-eight hours with conventional bombs.
1: My, yeah, I, yeah, that's true. The, the night of the black rain in Tokyo because a whole wooden city just burnt with firebombing.
0: But Which was the goal to actually literally burn that low income part of the city down. But I digress.
1: Right, no, but we're digressing. But the, the the point is important because it's not just Russia that does this. Now, America's developed smart bombs and we've gotten much more precision so we can take things out and, and claim to be more humanitarian. But when we get caught, in a bad situation, we we do, like anybody. You're going to resort to higher firepower. That's like napalming the jungles of Vietnam or, you know, using Agent Orange. You've got to do what you have to do in order to save your troops. And that's that's the logic of war and to win. And Russia is pursuing it because they don't have, you know, they're not as smart as we th- thought they were. And they've blundered through this and they're going to resort to the traditional high you know, so, and and it's going to cause a lot of devastation.
0: So anyway, but your point is you just uh you just get more of the same if if and in a way, you know, if the US endlessly backs Ukrainian aspirations to retake all this territory, assuming those aspirations remain intact, and I'm not even sure of that. I'm not sure we've really heard from the Ukrainian people and the mothers of those troops and and so on, but uh, if that aspiration remains intact and the U.S. supports it endlessly, you're saying we're going to get more of the same, a lot more carnage, even more destruction. Uh,
1: and that deal not is going to have to be cut. You know, yeah, a very, yeah I agree. A very I, awkward. Un, unhappy deal is going to have to be cut where yeah. we make some terribly, you know, some very bad decisions. And, That's what we did in Afghanistan. You know, you don't want to, you want to make them sooner than later. And the trouble with kicking a can down of the road, like we did in Afghanistan for 20 years, is that you get more and more people who are indebted to you, who've built their lives around trusting you, and their lives are going to be wiped away. So the longer you stay in order to help those people who've already trusted you, the more people you're going to have trusting you and depending on you. And it doesn't solve the problem. unless you're willing to stay for 80, 90 years like the British in India or something like that and just and just remake the country. But America mm-hmm. doesn't have that kind of staying power. We won't do it. And if we if we now we're giving this heavy artillery and this heavy rocket power to the Ukrainians, who can make a lot of you know obviously hurt the Russians very badly with this. But the Russians are going to I would imagine that they're going to start just lobbing rockets into the middle of Kiev and places like that in order to say, don't do this.
0: Yeah, I think one disservice that's been done by people who claim that the Russians are already, in effect, uh, pursuing a strategy of, of just wiping out as many civilians as possible or something, which they're not doing. Is that they, we, the, this leaves us under the impression that things can't get worse. They could get a lot worse if Russia makes it their goal to, to, you know, right now, what it seems to me is happening with cities in Russia, by and large, it, there may be cases where Russia says, you know, it wouldn't, it would be a little easier if these civilians would uh, evacuate. We no need to be too precise with our, our artillery power. But by and large, what's happening is that when Ukrainian troops defend cities, they are in the cities. They are in, you know, they're in and around civilian buildings, and it's mainly in trying to kill them that the Russians destroy the cities, right? And it could get a lot worse if Russia actually decides they want to kill civilians and totally wipe out uh, the country of Ukraine.
1: Yeah. And and we saw, you know, we saw this in Syria. The longer you're at war and the more of your family members are killed and the more frightened you are. The less likely you are to uphold any kind of rules of engagement, um, and and as a soldier, you just you just want to kill everything that's walking because you don't want to. You're frightened, and uh, and that's the trouble. Is that you? Mm-hmm. Whatever little, little crust of civilization is stopping all these horrible, you know, brutal brutality, uh, it falls away, and then very bad things happen.
0: Yeah, so I would imagine I, I can't believe that the U.S. really plans to um, to give uh, to give Ukraine a blank check, even though they're talking that way for I guess what they consider political reasons. I I, I just can't believe Biden's real philosophy is whatever the Ukrainians want; it's for them to decide how far they go. Uh,
1: yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, a lot of it is rhetoric, I think now because you, the Ukrainians are telling us you've got to stick with a narrative, which is we're going to go all the way because we need to make the Russians blink and we need to make them believe this. And so I, I think that's where something like a Kissinger writing this op-ed infuriated people because he's speaking out of church and and he should know better than that. So in that sense, but the trouble is you get trapped in your rhetoric because right. once you convince all the people that this is the moral just thing to do, how do you step back from that? Right, And and that's the
0: problem. Right. Biden is putting himself in a political box potentially if he keeps talking the way he's talking. And Zelensky may be doing some of that as well. But uh, in any event, let me ask you just just before we go, step back and ask you about your perspective on Ukraine uh, as as informed by your study of Syria and Russia's involvement in Syria. Um, Have you been less surprised? Uh, I guess there are a couple of things I'd like to know how surprised you were about. The first one would be the way Russia reacted to the deposing uh, in 2014 of a more or less pro-Russian Ukrainian president. Now, they they seized Crimea. That was their initial invasion of of Ukraine. Crimea, you don't hear this much in America, but uh, Crimea had a very important Russian naval base. And uh, wouldn't surprise me if, given the way the things unfolded in 2014 and the degree of apparent American involvement in the transition of power uh, and so on, Putin wasn't worried that the lease that uh, the long-term lease he had that entitled him to that military base was now imperiled. But in any event, um, there's also a naval facility in Syria, by the way, that 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 probably figured to some extent in Russia's calculations in in intervening there. But but anyway. The, the, you don't you don't have to get into the naval bases and stuff but but the two questions i want to ask you and let's focus on the first one first is is, is first about were you surprised by how russia reacted to what happened in 2014 and then we'll then i'll ask you a question about uh the more recent developments in ukraine
1: well let me let me just what what struck me the most is that russia was very successful in supporting Assad in Syria. And they just used air power. They didn't put boots on the ground. There there were some, but very limited. And it didn't cost them lots of money. And they were able to rebuild Assad, which gave them a lot of credibility in the region. Because by the time they stepped in, in, in the fall of 2015, most of the region had come to the conclusion that they didn't want Assad to fall, or at least his military, the Syrian military, to collapse because Radicals would take over. And in Syria, and here's the big point, the opposition was never able to unify. There were 1,500 different militias. There was not a military command that was unified. There, It was a total chaos. And the different militias were fighting each other for turf. It was a mess. And they radicalized. So Putin, I think, looked at this and said, you know, there is really no such thing as Syrian nationalism and there's no such thing as Ukrainian nationalism. And if I just go boom and I'm authoritative, they'll scatter and they're not going to unify. And I think that gave him tremendous confidence in using military force in Ukraine. It was wrong. The Syrian model did not uphold in Ukraine and Zelensky, you know, shocked everybody because here was this government which we knew to be corrupt and laced with pro Russians and all this stuff, and yet, Zelensky stood up and unified Ukrainians in a way that nobody could really imagine, and it clearly uh, undercut everything that that Putin foresaw happening, mm-hmm. and and that's the biggest difference is that nationalism is the wild card. It didn't happen in Syria. Mm. The rebel side completely collapsed and the Western supporters, Western, turned away from them. And in, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian nationalism really uh, worked. And and so that's the, you know, that for me, that's the big difference between the two. And I think that's where Putin, I think he saw in fighting within Russia that and he's, he's, he's said, lots of countries are not ready for democracy. And the Middle East, and, and he's accused the United States, when, when the United States started supporting the insurgency in Syria, he said, the United States doesn't know what they're doing. He gave a big talk at the UN. And he said, I am on the side of sovereignty, and I am on the side. The United States, in, trying, in saying it wants to bring democracy, is c- causing havoc and is... Ultimately supporting these radical groups like the Islamists in Afghanistan and Isis and al-Qaeda and so forth And and this was his speech and he believed that America's philosophy of supporting democracy is a failure In much of the world and what the world needs is a strong man like me in Russia Mm -hmm. Assad Saddam Hussein And in Egypt Gaddafi in Libya. And that was his analysis. And I think he believed that he could do the same thing in Ukraine, that Ukrainians would scatter, he could put in a strong man, and he would get away with it. Because anything the West tried to do would be just sand in their hands, and it would fall apart the way it had in Syria. And that's, that's where the, the nationalism is really the wild card, I think, that, mm-hmm. that, that separates these two things.
0: And, you know, he, he, presumably was also over extrapolating from the experience in crimea but there there the nationalism was on his side as you said that's overwhelmingly an ethnically russian uh area and 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 there were real grievances there against ukrainian control there had been some uh tragedy in odessa right like a bunch of there was some a bunch of uh, ethnic russians were in a building and somebody set it on fire and a 100 died or that's a big big thing in odessa's uh uh Oh wait a second! No, I'm getting mixed up. That's Odessa. That that was Odessa, right? That I'm
1: thinking of. I can't help you here because I don't know enough about the. Uh, okay. Okay. The-
0: so anyway, but in yeah. Crimea, you know, nationalism was more or less on his side, and and I don't understand why he assumed it wouldn't be an obstacle once he once he took on Ukraine more broadly. But apparently, he did.
1: Right. I think he thought it would it would collapse, and that the Ukrainians wouldn't find. Uh, wouldn't find what they have found under Zelensky, which is some kind of unity and real fighting spirit. Yeah, uh, and and I think all of Europe was astonished, and then they jumped in behind, and and it's it's been a uh, it's been galvanizing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to say? I mean, you've really helped illuminate this, uh, the dynamics of this. You know this somewhat complicated thing involving Turkey and Sweden, Finland, well, let me Syria.
1: Just, I, I just come back and end by saying that the, the Middle East, I think a lot of this conflict is about nation-building and, and it begins in World War I with the collapse of these multi-ethnic empires and an attempt to recreate political community around a national identity. And as you said in the beginning, So many of these borders were drawn around peoples who didn't want to live together and couldn't ultimately find a convivienda, a a common political community. And so they're fighting it out. And it's it's long and bloody. And in a place like Syria, where you haven't had a resolution to this in any meaningful way, where the regime has remained in power, but much of the population doesn't see it as legitimate, it means that conflict is not over, and it's been frozen. And we see that in Lebanon, we see that in Iraq, we see that in Syria. It isn't over. We see that in Arab-Israeli conflict too, in 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 Israel slash Palestine, if you will. Um, this whole region is fighting over national borders, and today it's caught up in this great power conflict: Russia versus America. Saudi Arabia versus Iran, Shiite versus Sydney. And unfortunately, with the power of sanctions, it makes recovering from this kind of war much, much more difficult because the crushing sanctions that are on places like Syria or Iran, but Syria in particular, which um, mean that people are living in terrible poverty. It's very difficult to rebuild. And, and it's, it's economic growth ultimately that can help you Rebuild some kind of trust amongst people who've been fighting in the civil war, and, and, and
0: um, these are largely our doing. The sanctions are, if the U.S. wanted a different policy with respect to Syria and Iran, there could be a different. The sanctions could be, if not entirely removed, uh, much less. Sanctions are a modern,
1: a modern form of warfare. Uh, you know, they've always been there because people have have, have tried to put ships around Europe and. You know, that's what Britain did with Napoleon and so forth. But it it was very difficult to maintain what we do today with the SWIFT codes and banking and freezing out and and designating people and so forth. So sanctions really work today. And in many ways, you know, you think of the Treasury Department, which has hundreds of people in it today. It's beginning to compete with the State Department for making foreign policy as well as with the defense department of course because the military budget is the biggest but the treasury department is becoming a very fundamental part of our foreign policy making and the state department becomes in a sense relatively less and less important and that growth within the treasury department is is, is, is indicates how important this economic warfare so is so this and gives treasury, treasury-
0: actual influence over foreign policy? In other words, it, it, I would imagine that what happens is, you know, Tony Blinken and Biden work things out, decide what they want to do and send a memo to Treasury. But it sounds like you're suggesting that there's some actual influence within Treasury.
1: Yes. Well, once you, you know, people fight to get into the jobs and you have lobby groups getting people into jobs and and they become, they once you get a whole line of people who are going to be designated if you want to carry out diplomacy, and we see this with the IRGC, right? One of the biggest stumbling blocks. The
0: Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, the, a branch of the military.
1: Right, in, 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 the biggest stumbling block today in front of coming to some kind of accord with Iran over the nuclear deal, is that the Treasury Department, the American government has designated the, the IRGC, That's the that's the Republican Guard, as yeah. a terrorist organization. And the government of Iran is saying, no, you have to lift that designation. And politically, it's too hard to do it. Right.
0: And so, but, but Biden could do it. He's the one who senses the political pressure, right?
1: Right. But in many ways, it was placed on there by Trump. Right, right. In order to make it impossible for him to right. come to an agreement. And so these were, you know, sort of. Poison pills that were dropped by the last administration. So it becomes very political. It becomes hard to undo, and um, and it becomes hard to coordinate all these different mm-hmm. groups, which are all, all fighting for authority over foreign policy.
0: And I think it can be the case. I mean, I've heard of things like this happening. That you know, somebody in the state, the State Department, really wants. Uh, has doubts about sanctions. They talk to Treasury and people in Treasury say, "No, you don't understand legally. This is very hard to do." I mean, there definitely can be that kind of resistance yes, that that, that level of influence. Yeah,
1: no, um, and it is hard because the, the sanctions become get passed by Congress as well, and then it becomes very hard because they they have in their language is that the regime has to stop killing people, things like that, yeah. and you know. <laughs> So how do you ever lift that? It, yeah, it becomes yeah. very difficult. It, it becomes hard to do it through diplomacy and making deals, yeah. because the Congress will say no. They're still killing people in their bad regime, which is true. And uh, and then of course stuck. our
0: sanctions are killing people too. But that's not yes they are.
1: And that's that's something that we don't really. It's the it's the secret killer. You know, it's sort of like high blood pressure. You don't notice it, and it just gets you. Yeah. And and that's where sanctions are so devastating. And they' and of course they, they hurt the weakest people in society who've got the least yep. amount of food, the children, the women, and so forth. And they're the ones who are really hurt by sanctions. It's not Assad and his minions around him in his palace who are right. eating just fine.
0: And so. there are there are other countries, Venezuela and so on. Uh, so, um, well, thanks so much, uh, Josh. Where can people find you online? Now, what's your, your Twitter, is your Twitter handle Joshua Landis? Or? It's Joshua underscore Landis. L A N D I S and uh yeah, and, and uh, is there some other any other work? Well, I write Syria Comment right now.
1: I'm I, it's got a little bit of technical problems, but that's another place. It's a it's a blog called Syria Comment. So, so
0: normally if people Google that. It's up and running, but it may not be at this moment. Is that it?
1: Right, right. It's going to be this next week. But the the you know Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. Joshua Landis. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay, and I'm at Robert Ryder. and speaking of self-promotion, I encourage people to rate and review us and and, uh, rate and review The Right Show and so on. Uh, But thanks so much, Josh. This has been very illuminating. Uh, I hope we'll talk down the road. All right.